Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, Scott. My lady's aching to bring a body down. Oh, that sounds rough. <laughs> she daily preaches on where she wants to be. Mm-hmm. Which is episode eight of Stealing in the Dan. I was wondering what lines you were going <laughs> to choose this week. It was tough. It was a, it was a bit With of a push. So many, so many good ones in there. It was a bit of a push. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so here we are on uh, on episode eight, um, still breaking down uh, Can't Buy a Thrill onto track eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brooklyn, open paren, owes the charmer under me, close paren. Yeah. Uh, one more time, uh, uh, one more sit down with um, David Palmer. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Uh, but first, uh, 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 for first reactions, uh, producer Dakota. Oh, sorry. Let's uh, let's not ignore the formalities. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott Beckett, and I, I'm the other co-host, uh, Joe McElhaney. Uh And uh, solo producing with no no co-producer. Uh, only one man is big enough for this job, and it is Dakota. How about you, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dakota? <laughs> Dakota, I'm going to go way out on a limb and assume that this is the first time you've heard this song. The very first time. Yeah, and uh, and what do you, what do you think? I think it's like a 68.5 on the smooth rocking scale. Okay. <laughs> um, I also think it has an interesting country sound that I haven't heard from them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's fine. Like uh, I was taking notes and I wrote down unoffensive, mostly <laughs> unoffensive actually. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, just, just out of curiosity, on the uh, smooth rock and scale for to help us calibrate our uh, our scale at home, what would be like a one hundred on the <laughs> smooth rock and scale? Uh, hmm, one twenty. Wait, what? <laughs> Is that a song? One twenty? No, it's a, the peak oh, of the oh, scale. We're looking for a song. I was telling you the top of the scale. It's oh, well, then what is what is the one twenty? <laughs> what's a song example of a one twenty on the smooth rocking scale? I don't, I don't listen to enough music. <laughs> okay, I'll know it when I hear it. Okay, yeah, all right. Sixty eight out of one twenty sounds maybe generous in my opinion, <laughs> but <laughs> that's uh, that's me. That's my scale. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So uh, here we are. Um, uh, we tend to frame things up with like uh, our journey with this song. Um, I think this is going to be another one of those ones where we don't have a ton of early reminiscences of this song. Yeah. Um, this, this, if I regarded it at all, it was a back half filler track. And that's kind of where I'm at with it today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I um, uh, a, a slight peek behind the curtain, obviously. Um, we are currently in the studio recording episode eight, we have just in the real world in your timeline, uh, listener, uh, dropped episode four. Uh, yeah. Or no, no, episode, yeah, episode three, three, the fourth yeah. episode, episode three. Um, so I had recently listened to our discussion of dirty work. Yeah. Uh, and I remember saying at the time, uh, I could stand up for this song a little more than dirty work. And you were like, I'd love to hear you do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which made me nervous, but, but having spent, um, these past couple weeks thinking about this song, I still think like I would much rather hear this song than dirty work, but I, hmm. I agree that like, I, I don't, I think Dakota's take is very much aligned with mine. Like I don't find it offensive, but I would never reach for this song. If somebody offered me a glass of Brooklyn O's the charmer under me, I would politely accept it and I wouldn't have too much trouble choking it down, but I would never go to the fridge for a glass of Brooklyn O's the charmer under me. Yeah. Maybe I'm being harsh on it because I know what's coming. 
like what's the good stuff that's ahead with Steely Dan? Like, right. Not not that you don't also have that knowledge, but no, like, it's fair. It's just a different way to think about it, right? Yeah, if you're yeah. thinking about like, well, I could be drinking a Mexican Coca Cola with real sugar, and mm-hmm. you have handed me an RC Cola made with high fructose corn syrup, then you're going to be pretty upset about the RC Cola. Yeah. But if you maybe weren't thinking about the Mexican Coca Cola sitting in the fridge just feet away from you, you could be you could be like, that's oh, RC Cola is fine. This this song is a tab. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's it's fair. a tab. It's definitely sugar free but with like a lame rebooted can because <laughs> tabs cans I, I would go to bat as one of the greatest soda cans oh, yeah. of all time for sure but, yeah. yeah that's yeah the only bad thing about there not being tab in the world was like it was visually appealing yeah um, yeah no i think that's fair i think this is it's definitely sweetened with artificial sweetener yeah and some, part, sort of, some sort of cancer generating yeah it's it's it my big question with the song is is it sincere or is it the most subversive song on the album somehow <laughs> like cuz that's the only the only if the sentiment in the song isn't sincere yeah they're doing such a great job of covering that up um yeah well i will say so i'll say um i'll go ahead and, and like like up front say like um i have not done a ton of research for this episode of the podcast um but uh, i was like scrambling today like today is really like the one day that um and i guess just for listeners at home it happens to be a sunday it's it's uh we usually record on sundays just another peek behind the curtain yeah sure yeah um but yeah it's sunday it's it's currently 222 eastern time um i have i have spent the morning um trying to move stuff around um for those of you at at, at home uh, this is not a secret but it's uh, it's uh, it's not been widely broadcast um uh, my wife and i are expecting a child in february yeah um, ah, congr- congratulations i'll <laughs> say you. it on mic <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah joe had been clued in um, yeah. but uh, uh not, not many other folks know um so t- like we are finally starting starting getting getting our act together and making room for the baby and moving stuff around so had a couple friends over and and um uh, uh i've been uh uh, moving furniture around and stuff today. But like during the downtime, um, I, the friends that offered to help me out, I offered to get them Nate's bagels. Um, uh, so, and Nate's as it usually does on a Sunday morning had like a pretty lengthy line. So like while I was in line waiting to order and waiting for them to put my bagel order together, I was, uh, um, uh, studying stuff. And so the one thing that I did, which we have talked about before is, is search, um, the Steely Dan reader, Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, this is one of the ones where like there, there happened to be this article where, um, at some point, like they just, uh, asked, um, uh, Walter and Donald like point blank about a bunch of their songs. And th- this one, they were remarkably frank about, yeah. um, and I think, did we talk about this last week? Anyway, the, the, one of the interesting things about this song is it's apparently one that they had had written for a while, like Back yeah. when they were a songwriting duo in New York, before they put Steely Dan together, mm. this is one of those songs that they had like in the can when they put it. I mean, not in the can, but like in the drawer, ready okay. to pull out for Steely Dan. Yeah, when uh, when they uh, started uh, doing um, stuff. So this is uh, uh, Walter Becker, and and um, I guess <laughs> this is a lot of preface, but uh, one more little bit of preface is that I was similarly mystified by this song. Like I was like, I I mean, I get it, I understand the lyrics, they're intelligible, but like I don't. Like, is it right? Is it serious? Uh, I had heard I think I had read somewhere that it was about a neighbor of Donald's. But I was like, is he just like super cool or what? Um, So anyway, uh, this is the the, the grand reveal, which is like pretty frank, especially for them at the time. Uh, Quoting now Walter Becker. um, 
Well, the charmer was a guy who lived under Donald's apartment when we were in Brooklyn. And the song is just a bunch of things that the guy and his wife had coming to them, you know, for the indignities that they suffered living in Brooklyn, sitting on the stoop and just shooting the shit about the Mets and that kind of thing for 20 years. So you see, the song does yield to a valid interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I saw that, too, because before then I couldn't parse like what the lyric like even. Yeah, they it seemed like a pretty mysterious encrypted song and then once you know that it all slides into place yeah the missing piece there is like these are the things that the that was owed to him for suffering brooklyn i was like right. oh okay yeah because before that i was like is he just a cool guy that does all these things mm-hmm. but yeah i kind of i used to picture before i knew that like the like a great gatsby type guy right um and i thought brooklyn owes the charmer under me I was like, is this like a sex thing? <laughs> like that's <laughs> yeah, all yeah, I right. could that's all I could think of. Um but no, it's just the guy the guy downstairs. I think in the liner notes is uh is it President Street Pete? Oh, is, is that, that right? They, they dedicate the song to President Street Pete. That's awesome. Um I didn't see that. That's yeah. awesome. Um Yeah. Um and as we said, this is the other song that David Palmer sings, yeah. uh, lead vocal on. I mean he does he's on I think almost all the he does at least backing vocals on almost all the tracks on this album, but uh, this and Dirty Work are his only two features uh, mm-hmm. in the Steely Dan catalog. Yeah. After this album, he would be, he still came back and did some backing vocals on the next album, but uh, he would never be a regular member of the band again. And good riddance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm still not a huge fan of his voice, and then within the framing that you set up, like especially as contrasted with Donald's vocals. Mm. Um, if you had never heard Donald Fagan do a vocal on a Steely Dan track, Maybe you'd be okay with David Palmer, but like certainly the comparison is not kind to David Palmer. Yeah, and apparently in concert, Fagan never sings this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, even after Palmer left the band, he'd get like a percussionist to sing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is hard to imagine him uh, his his distinctive take on this song, you know? <laughs> right? Um, yeah, once again, it's not as like sappy or I don't know what the term like wide eyed or. Um, credulous as uh, dirty work but it is a little I mean it's still it's more that than any other song on the album do, do you think they do you what's your take as far as is it being sincere about this guy deserves this stuff or is it uh, sarcasm oh no I think it's sarcasm I don't I don't I, think I ever wondered if it was sarcastic I I want to believe it's sarcasm but the way it's delivered is so um I mean, the lyrics are kind of hyperbolic. Like, it's like, this guy doesn't just deserve a vacation and free golf and date with a movie star. He also deserves, like, in the last lines, like, to transcend time itself. (laughs) Like, that, I mean, that's where I'm like, okay, maybe they are just kidding. But Palmer's delivery and the the slide guitar, or the uh, steel guitar that Skunk Baxter plays is... um, has a poignancy to it that that makes that reading difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I said this could be the most subversive song on the album, right. because it sounds like to me uh, kind of a sappy, um, like AM gold track. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I hear some genuine affection for the character, and mm-hmm. like the the thing your your note about the liner notes kind of I feel like reinforces that. But like, I think it's an affection for like 
I don't even think it's that they like this guy. It's that, that they like that they have this character in their back pocket. Mm, like they're yeah. grateful to this guy for entering their lives so that they have this character in their back pocket. Yeah. And there's, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's some of that, um, like we know this guy is full of shit, but you know, give the guy a break. Right. You know? Like there's maybe a little bit of that. Um, yeah. But God damn it. Uh, <laughs> David Palmer on this song. I think. I'm not sure that this is my least favorite song on the album. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk more about that next week. Mm. But uh, his the the part at the end where he says um, "power enough to choose," his delivery of that, and then the Brooklyn knows the charmer under me. <laughs> yeah. That to me is the low point of the album, <laughs> and possibly the first you know the the through 1980 run of albums. It's yeah. like maybe the low point of all of that for me. Yeah. Uh, no, I can't think of a moment musically in a Steely Dan song I like less than that. Yeah. I, saying, I would rather hear this than Dirty Work, but yeah, that moment is worse than anything in Dirty Work. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. The the lyrics I find interesting. I like nothing I can really like hang my hat on, but like they 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 always like strike my ear funny. Mm-hmm. In yeah. a, in a way that's like it's like a little tickle, but yeah. then like nothing ever really seems to come of it. Mm-hmm. It's just like interesting phrasings and stuff, but Yeah. A race of angels. Yeah, bound with none with one another, a dish of dollars laid out for all to see. Like that just sounds like so like on the nose. It's just like the guy really just wants like a bowl of currency <laughs> sitting on his like foyer or something. I'm ima- it has to be rolled, you know, the money. Oh yeah, yeah I hope so. Yeah, because otherwise, yeah, that's yeah. yeah, yeah I was thinking about like it. A- like if it was literally just like a bowl of single dollars, that would be like like you know twenty eight bucks or something. <laughs> It depends on the size of the bowl, <laughs> yeah. I guess. And the yeah. denomination, sure. Yeah, but, yeah. but he does literally say dollars. So. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the yeah, race of angels bound with one another. I like, literally no clue what that means. Mm. Um, I, I was just thinking like he's uh, part of an elite, maybe. Right. Um, yeah, true. Uh, it is maybe the, the dollars thing is like a comment on how, how like tacky this guy's dreams are. Like, yeah. He can't even conceive. Like he's like, yeah. What if I, uh, <laughs> what if I just had a bowl of dollars that I show people? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what makes me. Yeah, it's one of the things that like makes me think that like the guy's kind of a rube or something. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, his lady's aching to bring a body down. I was just like, is she horny or is she tired? Oh yeah, she could be horny. Yeah. That's could, what, you know, like I think you said, like sometimes you wonder, is this a sexy song? I don't. But it's never like clear if it's sexy. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was just the under me thing that I was trying, like right, right. the charmer under me, like, right. For a long time, I thought it was like a song from the perspective of a lover or something. Yeah. But like, no, it's like literally a name. What, what's the line after aching to bring a body down? She daily preaches on where she wants to be. So like, that makes sense to me. It's just like, she's got aspirations and she like, you know, it's like, oh, she never shuts up about. Yeah. I took that verse. I do like the idea that maybe it is like he just wishes his wife was hornier or something or <laughs> yeah. like or they they hope that for him. Um, right. Uh, but the way I read it before is like the first two lines of the verse are like, this is what the guy's reality is, mm-hmm. um, you know, is his wife's nagging him. And then the second half, like, right. but, you know, if the world was just, he'd be <laughs> on a date with a movie star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a face we all have seen. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then, yeah, a case of aces done up loose for dealing. So I guess that just means like the, the deck stacked in your favor. Yeah. I guess with this, this makes sense, especially like you're saying of like the, 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 the plans are starting to get grander and grander. Maybe he's like disappearing into a, uh, a marijuana fog reverie or something. So it's like, ah, a deck of aces. And then just like <laughs> the power over time and space. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, the cards, of course, tying back to um, uh, do it again. Yeah. Uh, a little for doing thematic ties throughout yeah, yeah. The, the discography. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, th- I mean, t- to the extent that the song is worthwhile, and, you know, I'm I'm hating on it a little more. It is a tolerable song, you know. It's not yeah. it's not a, a total wash. Um, it's it's that pedal steel uh, guitar, I think, is the, the highlight of it. Yeah. And maybe the reason that it's on the album. Yeah, yeah, and I was going to say, this, yeah, this may be a theme through this episode, too, of... Um, I read a couple of, as I was, like, digging through the Steely Dan Reader, there was a number of, like, um, and these were, like, later uh, reviews and stuff from the 90s and the 2000s, people talking about, like, Steely Dan retrospectives, like, when they won the Grammy and uh, Mm -hmm. when they started touring again in the 90s and stuff like that. And a bunch of people mentioned that this was one of their favorite Steely Dan songs, which just baffled me. Yeah. Like, I don't understand. It's not that I'm. It's not that I can't understand liking this song, but like saying I am a Steely Dan fan and one of my favorite songs is Brooklyn Owes the Charmer Under Me. I, yeah. That is it's baffling. Like, what else do you like by that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, some people and like this is like and like this scares me a little bit. It's like some people really do think of them as a really good soft rock band. Mm. And it's like, but that's I. Yeah. If I could excise that part of their career, I would do it without a second thought. Yeah. Yeah. I. I, I wish I I hope we can find a, like uh, somebody that we yeah. can interview about this. that could represent like, that yeah yeah that, yeah, that, that, that goes to, that doesn't misunderstand the band right like gets what their project is but mm-hmm. it's like you know what actually for me yeah yeah dirty work and, and Brooklyn knows <laughs> the charmer are the highlights yeah and it's interesting. like musically I think the song is fine like we said this is one of those ones that kind of disappears in the background although like then we we we've talked several times about. Um, the subversiveness of Steely Dan of it like kind of blending into the background like smooth rock and then revealing itself over over time as being disturbing and sinister mm. and this just doesn't ever take that turn this song yeah. Um, yeah. it just is what it is it's like maybe mildly sarcastic um, but uh, and then I was gonna say like maybe like I mean I guess like no like even Dirty Work is jazzier than this like this is like the least jazzy song we've encountered so far yeah and then to your point like next week we may talk about (laughs) less jazzy Dan but um, but certainly like of the ones we've come up to like this is like just like a straight ahead R&B song yeah there's there's maybe some bass in the the Mm-hmm. There's some jazz in the bass line, um, maybe. Yeah, I don't, I don't uh, think they could take the jazz out of the bass line if they wanted to. Yeah. But. Um, and on uh, while we're talking about the music, uh, uh, the musical, the music of the song, <laughs> um, uh, I do like some of the guitar work oh, on yeah. the the outro, especially. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah. I think that's that stuff's solid. I, I like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's very smooth, but uh, yeah, nothing wrong with it. I think it's Skunk Baxter. Yeah, it could yeah. very possibly. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. The, and like the pedal steel, like you said, the pedal steel work is, is good. Um, um, I feel like I had something to say on this and then it's gone out of my head. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's just like not, not, not super jazzy. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I was, was going to say, like, I was trying to play the game with myself. Um, this is the best song that Mike oh, yeah, ever wrote. Yeah. And I just, I got, I got nothing. Like, I mean, yeah, it's going to have to be like, um, like some like soft rock guy, like Chris, Chris, uh, 
Yeah, I was trying to think of like who's kind of uh, somebody who mixes soft rock and country mm-hmm. with like country touches. Oh, you know what? This is unfair to Jackson Brown, but maybe like this is certainly this is not the best song that Jackson Brown never wrote, but it is a song that Jackson Brown never wrote. Yeah, I can't I can neither confirm or deny that not not knowing much Jackson Brown. Like but, running on empty and mm, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I, I think I'm tapped out on Brooklyn <laughs> as the charm. I listened to it four times today to prepare. Like, that was yeah, yeah. basically the preparation I did. Right. And I was like, okay, uh, I'm good if I don't have to listen to this for a while. Yeah, yeah. You know? No, it's fine. Yeah, I don't think anybody will be mad if we if we turn one of these episodes under an hour. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, we haven't done it so far, but we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, Brooklyn Nose and Charmer. I, yeah, if, if it is one of your favorite Steely Dan songs. Yeah, please. Uh, send, us, send us an email at yeah. uh, Dan At gmail.com. At gmail.com. Or find us on Twitter. Slide into those DMs. And uh, give us your defense of the song. And if it's uh, compellingly written, we'll read it on the air. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, like honestly, like not like trying to like make fun or set you up for anything. Like I would genuinely love to talk to somebody who loves this side of Steely Dan. Yeah, we're all about open-mindedness here. Yeah, for Steely sure. Dan and the Dan. Yeah. No opinion is wrong. <laughs> Although you got to work hard to justify this one, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll say, I, I, yeah, I mean, again, final diagnosis. I will still take this over Dirty Work. I think this is less obnoxious David Palmer than Dirty Work. But like, yeah, I'm still not sad that we're never going to see David Palmer again, except yeah. in the background. Yeah. Good deal. Well, uh, so uh, we didn't uh, tee it up at the beginning of the show, but uh, we did say last week that the uh, two related pieces of media that uh, we're going to talk about this week, uh, my pick, um, uh, uh, before I learned that uh, (laughs) this was uh, uh, back when I was still thinking about like a cool guy that you maybe emulate or sarcastically look up to. Uh, my uh, my pick was from 2000, uh, The Tao of Steve, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which we're going to tee up first. And then uh, in the back half, we're going to talk about uh, Joe's pick uh, from 1970, uh, the Bo Bridges uh, vehicle, uh, The Landlord. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hal Ashby. Yeah. Uh, good deal. So um, Dow of Steve, uh, just to set it up, it's a... Um, it was like an indie darling, uh, kind of uh, uh, stars Donald Logue. He's for sure like the biggest name in the movie and like nobody else. There's a couple of guys that you have seen in other things, um, like minor uh, actors. But, uh, for, um, for the listeners at home, uh, what would they know Donald Logue from? Uh, he was in the show Terriers, which I know is beloved by a small set of people. My parents love it. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Uh, he was in uh, he was like the minor bad guy in uh, Blade. Mm, uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, he was like uh, Stephen Dorff's like uh, left hand uh, okay. lieutenant. Uh, he was he had, he had some some decent comic moments in in Blade. Uh, he's been in a bunch of stuff, but I'm um, I think maybe the thing people might know him most for is that sitcom he was on, Grounded for Life. Oh sure, yeah. I mean anybody, um, that, yeah, anybody kind of a mid tier, yeah, early two thousand sitcom. Um, but he's – it's hard for me to imagine – I mean if you watch any sort of mass media at all, movies or or television, you've seen this guy somewhere. Yeah. He's had a relatively successful career. And I think this was his breakout role. I, I didn't realize he was in Blade, which would have been before this. But mm-hmm. I think this was – I remember when this came out, people being like, this guy's going to be a star. Well, apparently he won the Best Actor Award at Sundance, which I didn't even realize they did like all of the Oscar-adjacent yeah. – like Oscar analogs. I mm-hmm. thought it was just Best Film. But yeah, apparently he won Best Oscar at Sundance, which like, I'll go ahead and tip my hand. I was pretty shocked when I read that. Um, but anyway, it starts on the look. It's, it's clearly like an independent movie, both like sort of 
just the, the craft of it and then um, the scale of it um, and uh, sort of <laughs> the way it's laid out. Um, so it, it's, it's about this character, uh, Dex, uh, who apparently was uh, the uh, big man on campus in college. Mm-hmm. He was like smart and funny and good looking and quite the successful womanizer, uh, big philosophy student. Um, uh, literally big. <laughs> <laughs> well, not at the time, right? Oh, uh, uh, yeah. n- not in not in college. Uh, but um, uh, this the the movie starts at uh, I guess probably their ten year reunion or something. Um, uh, and he is quite heavy. Um, uh, he's a, he's a large man, and he's like clearly like. He, I mean, I guess it's kind of a classic story. The guy that was a, a bright candle in high school and college, high school or college, and then has since sort of like faded out, like burned bright and fast. Yeah. Uh, and now he's kind of a, a lovable oaf, um, still smart, like still kind of like the smart, uh, 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 wisecracker um, guy and still like, I guess, like maybe surprisingly successful with the ladies. I mean, the movie literally opens with him uh, engaged in sexual Congress uh, with a lady in the stacks at this library uh, and, and then cuts to uh, him uh, uh, walking her out uh, back to her husband. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um uh, but anyway, uh, and, he, and he's got this code, the Tao of Steve. His name is Dex. It's his, he's not Steve. It's uh, Steve is this concept that they uh, that he and his friends uh, <laughs> subscribe to of like like the the paragon of cool. Um, mm-hmm. Steve McQueen being like the ultimate example of this. Like be be Steve. Steve is an adjective, not Steve as a noun. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and these like uh, these like sort of precepts that he has for like how to live your life and then tactically like how to attract women. Right. Uh, which are uh, be excellent or no be desireless yeah, first yeah uh, uh if you want to have sex with a woman if you want to achieve having sex with a woman you must not want to have sex with the woman mm-hmm. uh and then uh, be excellent in her presence demonstrate uh uh sexual value uh, and then be gone like retreat uh mm-hmm. which is the thing he always says we we pursue that which retreats from us yeah so which he credits to like high digger <laughs> yeah. there are some there are some uh some shaky philosophical references in this yeah movie. including a discussion of kierkegaard uh, <laughs> that comes up at one point that's uh like uh a Wikipedia scan of Kierkegaard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so and, and and it's and it's set in Santa Fe, um, and it's like very '90s. Like the whole thing kind of screams '90s. Um, but it's him, and, and he's got like three roommates because he's just a kindergarten teacher. He doesn't make a lot of money. It's kind of like a, a part-time kindergarten teacher, yeah, not yeah, even yeah. full-time. Right. Um, and then uh, so and he's kind of like happy, just kind of like floating through life, like typical slacker movie. Again, there's like five movies that sort of have this same setup uh, from the from the period. Uh, but then this lady sort of stumbles into town that he becomes enamored with uh and sort of like gives up his whole uh shtick because he's too taken with her mm-hmm. uh, and then that's sort of like the the drama of the movie is him dealing with his uh his turn from his code and uh, this the fact that this lady will have none of it and yeah and so on um so i saw the movie um probably around the time that it came this is one of those ones where i was like in um either North Carolina or Okinawa in the Marines. And I was like buying almost anything I could find on DVD. Uh, and so I picked this up like almost randomly and watched it and was like very taken with it at the time. And I don't think I've seen it since. Mm. Uh, and, uh, so it's been a while since I picked it up and, uh, just rewatched it, uh, two nights ago, uh, finally. Um, and, uh, boy, it does not hold up as well oh, as I boy, remember. It does not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, like, uh, I've been talking for a bit, uh, uh, how about you? What's your, what's your journey with this movie? I think you had said you were familiar with it, but never had seen it. Yeah. Uh, um, I had heard about it when it came out and, mm-hmm. and read the praise and whatnot, and I thought the concept of it was cool. Um, I would have been maybe 10 at the time that it came out, maybe 11. Yeah. And 
I was a little little fat boy myself, <laughs> uh, just starting to get interested in girls, yeah. and uh, you know, I was all about fat guy representation uh, yeah. with with hot chicks. So, um, uh, <laughs> so that was my, you know, back in two thousand. You know, it was a really hard time for fat guys in media. <laughs> yeah. And it may sound cruel that we keep calling him fat because he's really not that fat. He's like a, you know, we'd probably, he's a little over dad bod now on, on today's <laughs> scale. But uh, um, it's a point in the movie that is hit repeatedly that he's, you know, he's got a gut. And mm-hmm. uh, so, I mean, I was like, oh, this is a movie about a fat guy that has sex. Cool. Right. Um, I didn't see it at that age. I don't know if I would have responded to it if I did. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I I was is a reminder to me watching it that a lot of especially it seems Sundance, a lot of the stuff that gets hyped and kind of praised is kind of instantly disposable. Like a year later, nobody talks about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like if something is likable, right, and has maybe a slight offbeat angle to Mm -hmm. an old story it gets picked up as kind of something um special right and uh you know you can hype up one performance or one aspect of it Mm -hmm. and uh then you know when people go and look at it 20 years later like we just have um find find it lacking right Um, i'm trying to think of what would be a recent example of that um well, I mean, yeah, I feel like because this was like a moment, right? Like there's all this stuff happening at the same time, like kicking and screaming and um, – Yeah, which would have been I, I think like five years before. But yeah. It, yeah. Uh, it, but either way, like we cared a lot about what Gen X like 20-somethings were mm-hmm. – thinking and saying you know for a while there right yeah and i think like so like maybe like this is even slightly out of date now but like i'm trying to think of like we had a moment with stuff like um oh gosh what was the movie like we had a lot of like um like even like young adult movies like what's the one something splendor the one that had like steve carell is like a jerky stepdad and um i don't know um but like that and then um what was and then the one about like the kids that worked at the amusement park with um um, it's not it's Adventureland. Adventureland, yeah, you know, um, yeah, that that stuff maybe is comparable. Um, well, just like I mean, like in the sense that like um, it, that that stuff will probably hold up better than the Tao of Steve. But like it, it was really hyped at the time, and I think if we went back mm-hmm. now, you'd be like, this is fine. But like, I don't know what we were all so excited about. This to me, uh, another point of comparison would be, I mean, Kicking and Screaming is a good example and a movie that I saw for the first time maybe a year or two ago mm-hmm. and liking Noah Baumbach's later stuff yeah. was kind of like, oh, this is, this is like, not so <laughs> right. good, you know? Yeah. It, it's like he saw some Whit Stillman movies and was like, I want to try that. Right. Um, but uh, it feels like maybe a gentler Kevin Smith movie. Yeah. Um, like less vulgar more sweet yeah Um, but also like less successful in a way like right i mean it's like yeah i would say it's like a muted kevin smith movie in that like it's not as or with less personality right that's what i mean right but it it, it is like less vulgar and um and shocking or i mean not but it it was shocking at the time because nobody was like doing i don't know i mean it's juvenile humor but like i don't know anyway yeah yeah you're talking about kevin smith yeah, yeah, yeah 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 that's what i mean like less like less shocking than Kevin Smith, but also like less um, astutely observed, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, like to me, it made a lot of sense. So like, uh, I'll say like, it made a lot of sense, like watching the end credits. Like I, I gave the end credits a little bit of a minute and like at some point it says based on stories by Duncan North. Yeah. And then it says based on stories about Duncan North. And then it says based on Duncan North. Did you look into that at all? Yeah, I found uh, an L.A. Times article. Yeah, I read this as well, yeah. Which will be in the show notes, the uh, secrets of of the seducer. Yeah, Um, I I was like scanning this again, like at Nate Spiegel's this morning. But then it like, again, the same way that like Walter Becker's description of uh, Brooklyn Knows the Charmer to me, like opens up that whole song. That opens up this whole movie. Like like the fact that the philosophy is half-assed. It's yeah. like, right, because if you talk to Duncan North, he would maybe get the philosophy. I'm assuming he has got the philosophy more down. Mm. But like this is this is a movie written by a friend of his. Yeah, you know? it, it is uh, maybe important to note that um, it's it's written and directed by a by a woman. Yeah. And her sister uh, co-wrote it with her and is, is, the female the, is the female lead in the movie Sid. Mm-hmm. Um, and they worked on it with this guy they knew in Santa Fe who's uh, – yeah, he's, it's the craziest thing. He's like a fat guy that has sex with women. <laughs> so weird. Wild, man. Yeah. Wild. I looked, and he says in this article that it's maybe 86% true, the movie. Okay. Um, and he actually dated uh, the- Jennifer Goodman. Or, the, or the, the woman who plays- uh, Oh, interesting. Uh, but the, Sid. The, yeah. The other Goodman. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, that kind of that kind of puts it a little more in in context. It's like they were like, let's make a movie about this interesting guy right. that we know mm-hmm. um, who's smart and has sex with women. Yeah, um, but it's also because I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, it just seems like I wish Duncan North had written this movie because, like, like you said, like it seems like a like a lot is sort of like lost in translation. Mm. This is like a police sketch of him that's not great, you know? Yeah, um, I I think is also they probably overestimated how interesting the concept of this guy being yeah. a lady killer is. It, it made me think about how, like, you know, 10 years later, like, that kind of pickup artist scene would start and right. how that evolved into men's rights. Right. Uh, MRA guys, whatever. Yeah. And it's like, this is like the gentle... I'm not saying that this is on the same continuum as that. Right. Um, but it's definitely like... This is like the gentle version of a pickup artist sort right. of it's less dehumanizing to women yeah um it still like values women as people although it's just the kind of thing of like you just like your goal would be to hook up with lots of women yeah he kind of coaches his friend uh throughout the movie yeah. on on his doofus friend perfect yeah. casting the guy's face pissed me off so much every time he was on screen yeah um i forget and, his name but this guy you the, the, i was like i know this guy from something and i was like i, I was like looking at his eye it's like it's got to be something else he must have had a more prominent part but his biggest part other than this was in empire records he okay. was like um who's the the guy that played the doofus in empire records um he's his like good friend okay the guy yeah. who like has the dream about being in a gore video I, w- I would call him a gap-toothed Michael Ian Black. <laughs> yeah, right. No, yeah, yeah, he does look a lot. Like, I had yeah. that same thought. He does look a lot like Michael Ian Black, but, um, uh, but yeah, less funny. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's some just, like, really – those scenes to me were maybe the most cringy, where his friend just, like – at one point, he's he's working at a motor- – uh, Donald Logue's character is working on a motorcycle at somebody else's house. Yeah. And this guy just, like, walks up out of nowhere, and it's like, hey, man, I had a date last night, and it didn't <laughs> yeah. go so well. Right. And it's like – 
every time this happens, it's like a springboard for uh, right. to go deeper into the Tao of Steve. Yeah. And then, you know, then at the end, it kind of it kind of blows up when the guy runs in at a pivotal moment and like yeah. shares in front of his romantic interest the, this philosophy, uh, ruining everything. Uh, right. I don't know. Yeah, it's funny. Like a lot of this movie just hit me as like a lot more sort of like forced and hackneyed than like mm-hmm. I was kept waiting for like these revelations to like hit me hard the way that I way that they did when I watched it when I was I mean like I was like 18 or 19 at the time so mm. I like I feel like I should have known better but I guess it's slightly understandable like and yeah. like you said I was the same thing I was a chunky kid growing up like this felt like important to me <laughs> yeah this felt like did like tips I needed for a living yeah um but yeah like in retrospect like yeah it's just it's uh and it, I don't know and then I started feeling bad because like well first and, and like this is what I was like teeing up when I was talking about how surprisingly lots of people think that you know, lots of people say that Brooklyn owes the charmer under me is their favorite song. Like you go back and look at the reviews, like, like Roger Ebert gave it three stars. I was mm. like, I'm not crazy. I wasn't the only one that was taken in at the time. Oh no. Yeah. I remember seeing it on some like best of list right. at the end of the year. You know, it was like, and now I don't understand how that, like I, I can kind of understand why 18 year old me thought that, but I don't understand why 40 something year old Roger Ebert thought that. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, um, I think it's just like this spell that falls over people where they yeah. they just have these diminished expectations. Yeah. Anything that's like slightly novel but fits into this comforting kind of formulaic package, they can mm. be like, oh, this is a new spin. Right. Um, and I started to feel bad because like it's very – it's clearly very indie. Like the budget must have been in the tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And like having done – like nothing on this scale but like having done like 48-hour film projects and stuff, it's like I know how hard this is. Like, I'm sure they did a lot of work, you know, and it's not without any craft, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things that's like, if you showed this to a friend, you'd be like, oh, wow, that's really cool that you did this. But like for, to hold it up in the pantheon of all cinema and say, this is a good movie. It's like, no, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> Donald Logue is clearly the best thing about this movie, but even his performance isn't great. Like I just, like he was like sort of doing like a, a Kevin Smith impersonation at some points. And, uh, um, I, like I had it in my notes. Like I, he sort of cycles through like, it was like at one point he's kind of doing Tarantino. At one point he's kind of doing Kevin Smith. Um, the scene where he breaks down the Dow Steve and they're doing kind of a pseudo reservoir dogs camera going around the table. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like a, I, I was cringing. I was, it was so like everything bad about like swingers, Kevin Smith, right. Ni- Mid nineties, independent boom, um, processed in one scene where right. it's like, they think the dialogue's very clever yep. and they make Hawaii five O references right. and, uh, the guys who play as friends are just like have no charisma at all. Yeah, it's it's uh, pretty brutal. <laughs> yeah, it's it's super not great. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> again, I, I I should have I need to start doing what you were you've been doing and like pre screening these things before I I, I recommend them. But uh, yeah, it's not not at all what I remembered. Um, yeah, the soundtrack like clearly like two thirds of the soundtrack is just like canned movie score. Yeah, you, know, you bought like um, uh, you know like. It, I mean, it's like, I forget what you, there's, you know, there's a term for this, but it's like industrial music. Yeah. Um, and then some of it is like, it's probably like indie bands from Santa Fe that they knew. Like, you know, there's a song called The Dow of Steve that was clearly written for the, the <laughs> Which movie. I looked into it because I was like, this is ridiculous. This movie has a yeah. theme song. Uh, it's the same guy who did the theme song for Todd Salons' Happiness, which I didn't remember <laughs> that having yeah. a theme song that wow. apparently Michael Stipe sang. I got to go revisit that movie because yeah. I used to love it. 
and uh, American Splendor, which there's a scene I remember in that movie where they they uh, it's like during a stage production of his life, yeah, and they do like this really corny song that's like. This is my American Splendor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it always made me laugh. And I was like, oh, maybe that was sincere. Like, <laughs> um, we'll, is... we'll pipe in the Dow Steve uh, yeah. theme song now. There's a power in the world that can make your dreams come true. You can pick out any woman and she'll fall in love with you. We didn't have to do that little boss <laughs> there. Not at all. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess like if you want like a little, because I will say like it is a very accurate slice of the late 90s, early yeah. 2000s. Yeah. Like the one thing that stuck out to me was their brief conversation. Again, this still felt kind of like shoehorned in, but like they're like the first thing that they bond over is talking about Josie and the Pussycats and like mm, 70s cartoons because yeah. yeah. there was this very brief but very bright like renaissance of all that stuff. There was even like I had this album called Saturday Morning Cartoons, which was all the current bands of the time like Blind Melon did um, Three is the Magic Number from Schoolhouse Rock. And um, is it the one where uh, Pavement did? uh Probably uh, they do a uh, cover a Schoolhouse Rock cover too uh, of Kings or something like that. Uh, yeah, but there, um, it was like it was a whole album of this of like you know '90s bands, alternative bands doing um, uh, '70s cartoon themes mm-hmm. theme songs. They did the Bugaloos, like all the stuff that they talked about. This Josie and the Pussycats. Um, so that I mean, like there were a couple of things that was like this like was a good uh, like reminder, like a good sort of way back into like those memories. But again, like. Uh, I mean, like I said about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, if you don't have any fond memories of those times, I can't say that there's a good reason to to watch this movie. Yeah. If I have anything uh, good to say about it, and I feel like I should say something nice, <laughs> um, you know, I've been interested in visiting Santa Fe and yeah. the movie. Uh, it's kind of cool that it was shot in Santa Fe. Right. It, it makes it look like a pretty chill place. Yeah. Um, so... Santa Fe seems cool. <laughs> Santa Fe that's is the my best. review of Dowsty. <laughs> Santa Fe is the best thing about this movie. That's for sure. Yeah, and it's cool that I mean I think regional cinema is like right, and that's what right awesome. That's a great I great thing to, to yeah to that's, make movies where you live. Yeah, um, that's why I feel bad about like being harsh on it. Mm. I just don't. Yeah, I just don't understand it being held up the way that it was. Yeah, um, but if somebody said like, "Hey, here's this weird movie that somebody made in Santa Fe," I'd be like, "Oh yeah, that's pretty cool." Mm-hmm. So if anybody's favorite movie is Dow of Steve or, or, <laughs> yeah, or anybody yeah. holds it in high regard yeah. and wants to write us to tell us uh, what we are missing, um, I won't believe you, but we will, <laughs> again, share it on the air. Um, yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like one of my buddies that was helping me move stuff around today, he said like, he's like, oh, I, he's like, I love that movie. Like I'll watch it anytime it comes on. And I was like, really? Because I was like, oh, well, well. I, told, I, mean, I told him, I was like, it doesn't hold up nearly as well as I thought it does. And he's like, he, he was like, I won't say, and he's like my other like cinephile fan. He's like mm-hmm. the other fan that would make me watch stalker. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but so I was, I was quite surprised, but like, I take him at his word. I mean, yeah, and, yeah. And, like, he said, like, he's like, I won't defend it, but he's like, I genuinely enjoy it. But it does seem like the kind of movie that 
if it's on late night on HBO and you can't sleep, you, you would watch for yeah. thirty minutes or something. You know, it's it's got. If I, if I'm being generous, I can see definitely how somebody would uh, yeah would feel that way about it. But yeah, I don't know. Anyway, watch anything else Donald Logue is in because <laughs> yeah. I yeah. like Donald Logue. I, the, I saw the pilot of Terriers and uh, yeah. I've been meaning to go back and watch it that season. Yeah, uh, seemed promising. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, so long, Dow Steve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we now we can banish it from our minds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, moving on to maybe a slightly richer text. Uh, <laughs> yeah, slightly. Uh, Hal Ashby's 1970 film, The Landlord, mm-hmm. um, as Scott said, starring Bo Bridges. Um, I think context-wise, this is probably something that got financed, uh, like, after The Graduate, you know? I didn't research the... The making of too hard, but it seems to me that kind of like they could sell it as a coming of age story. Um, it's essentially um, Bo Bridges is this aimless. His his name is Elgar Winthrop Julius Enders, <laughs> and he is uh, an aimless twenty nine year old rich kid um, who decides to strike out on his own by purchasing. An apartment building in the, or a tenement building in the Park Slope neighborhood of Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, before it was the Park Slope we know today, when it was a primarily uh, black neighborhood. Yeah, um, and uh, much to the <laughs> chagrin of his family. Yeah, um, and you know the setup. It could seem like it's going to turn into this culture clash comedy where it's like rich, well-meaning white liberal meets. Uh, you know the the tenements of his apartment, um, and there's maybe a touch of that, but I think it ends up going much deeper than that kind of mm-hmm. um, superficial culture clash comedy that we've kind of been conditioned to to expect. Yeah, um, I mean, I would say like it, it almost even kind of does a rope a because it basically does that for about thirty minutes mm, and then takes a hard turn. Yeah, yeah, and by the end is is kind of devastating. Yeah, um, in a Without totally breaking the continuity, like it doesn't feel like it's not like a sudden tonal shift. No, it's, it's very natural uh, mm-hmm. flow. Um, but as as uh, Bo Bridges' character um, gets involved with his neighbors, um, <laughs> he he ends up falling in love with a, with a woman whose um, father is black and his mother is Irish. He thinks he sees her at like a go go bar dancing, yep. and he he thinks that she's a white woman, mm-hmm. um, which she clocks immediately. Yeah, it's really funny. Um, she just goes like he starts talking to her, and she goes, "You think I'm white, don't you?" <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, he's like, oh, um, <laughs> my bad. <laughs> uh, uh, Bo Bridges in this is very good at playing dumb. Yeah. Um, but he, um, uh, they they start a relationship, but at the same time, there's a woman in the building. Her name is Fanny, mm-hmm. um, played by Diana Sands, who I think is uh, gives a really great performance. Yeah. Um, she was Miss Sepia, uh, 1957, I think. Yeah. So she's... She's getting a little older, but she was, you know, basically Miss Black America at one at one point. And, yeah. uh, you know, her, her husband, who's played by Lou Gossett Jr., which I didn't realize uh, until the second time around. Yeah. Um, he's, you know, kind of – he's 
like a radical, but he seems to change his viewpoints all the time, and he's he's got some alluded to mental instability. Yeah, um, and he's um, he's not sexually interested in her any, anymore, and. There, this really interesting relationship starts between her and Elgar, where at first it's her trying to be like, oh, this is the landlord. I got to suck up to him a little bit and flirt with this white guy. And then it kind of turns into something um, more intimate, more like um, she makes he makes her feel beautiful in this right. kind of sequence, um, this really great uh, part after party sequence. Mm-hmm. And uh, they end up having a. A little affair. I won't say too much more on that, but that that comes to an interesting conclusion. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, um, this is directed by Hal Ashby, who mm-hmm. y- you guys may know from Harold and Maude or uh, Being There, right. which gets talked about a lot in in the context of like the era of Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of made a, a comeback. Um, this was his first movie. Before this, he was an editor. Yeah. Um, it's shot by Gordon Willis, the guy that shot The Godfather, The Godfather 2, um, Manhattan. So, like, a legendary cinematographer. And I, I looked at his filmography, and this is one of his first movies that he really worked on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's written by this guy, Bill Gunn, who's a was a black playwright and filmmaker, um, who his first movie that he directed a couple of years after this was completely lost by the studios. Hmm. And he was like, like really radical kind of um, filmmaker who, who said challenging things about race, but not like the challenging things about race that you necessarily, that can be like neatly packaged. Right. Like he, he had some really like kind of troubling and chaotic views on things. Yeah. Um, he made this movie Ganja and Hess, which is kind of like this crazy, um, vampire art film um that spike lee remade as the sweet blood of jesus oh okay um but having his perspective in it it turns this into something that could be like kind of a white liberal movie um into something i think a lot um a lot richer and and more complicated but yeah i mean i feel a lot more comfortable just like thinking about it and talking about it knowing that (laughs) yeah yeah because it it I could see if this was released today, and it, it, when it was released, it was kind of immediately forgotten about and lost for years. Um, mm-hmm. But if it was released today, I could see people being like, why is it told from the white guy's point of view? Or um, the way the arc of the story kind of uh, goes, it turns into kind of the story of his coming of age, maybe more than people would be comfortable with. Yeah. Um, but I think unlike a lot of those movies, it really does – like you really see um he sees the consequences of his actions um and it's it's not pitched to us softly like it's it's mm-hmm. kind of harsh right um but yeah i don't know what uh what were your what were your thoughts what yeah i thought it was fascinating again like uh, uh <laughs> scott has a look on his face which i probably have on my face too of like all right, we've got to talk about race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. I mean, it's, 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 yeah, it's hard to know what to say about that stuff. I mean, like, it's certainly, like, very awkward. But, like, the end of it, I don't know, like, in the couple of things that I was able to to, to scan, um, I think you know, what I saw it made a lot of sense to me in that, like, um, it ends in a way that is both, like, sort of 
disappointing, but like only like in the sense like disappointing if you are rooting for the characters or sort of like rooting for a happy ending or something. Yeah. But it also feels very true, like realistic and true to those characters. Like it's like the most probable outcome, like mm. the most realistic outcome for that situation. So it's like you, you on the one hand, you want to be like, well, that's it's not a good ending. But you're like, dude, like that's an honest ending. Right. Yeah. Um. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like overall, like uh, I didn't realize it was the same DP as um, as Manhattan. Like that's because like one of the things that struck me is just like almost every shot is stunning. Yeah, uh, like there's like no sort of like standard like over the shoulder uh, mm-hmm. anything. Like everything is like really striking uh, visually. Um, yeah, like Bo Bridges, like fascinating. I was like, I was, I, I wanted to have done like a bunch of uh, homework on like where was Bo Bridges in his career, where was Jeff Bridges in his career, like how did Jeff Bridges come to be sort of like the bigger Bridges brother. Mm. Um, every other actor in the movie, like yeah, like all these performances are are so. Um, stunning and just like the uh and it has a bit of that like i mean you can tell like this is like that auteur era um where they do like some interesting stuff the way that they like i mean just the way that it starts with like the shot of him in that lounger and then it cuts to what we will later learn is a scene of him in like grade school Mm -hmm. but then like only for like five seconds how are we to live how are we to live yeah kind of kind of maybe the, the opening question of the movie and as you go on you realize um uh what maybe the movie is asking uh, right uh yeah and then uh the, yeah i mean just the, the scenes at the uh that which I, I can't believe i didn't think of it but somebody said like his parents house which is basically a plantation yeah, yeah. uh i mean just like not that like they grow crops with slave mm-hmm. labor but like it has that look and feel yeah and they have black servants yeah um yeah the uh, dinner scene between yeah. him and his parents is uh, is also um, maybe a good example of the rope dope you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Because you up until that point, I think I maybe thought Bo Bridges is well intentioned and kind of a doofus, um, like he's, but he's not as bad as these guys, um, right? Uh, some like the rich family is really made out to be kind of grotesque. Um, yeah, I mean the his, mom like claims to be liberal. Yeah, but is like yeah a, a pretty Play, uh, played by uh, Lee Grant who who was nominated for an Oscar for great role. performance yeah, yeah. Um, and to, again it's like it's like a bit of a caricature but like very like drawn from plenty of real people people that are yeah. like well I'm not racist but I just hold several incredibly racist attitudes and would never associate with <laughs> yeah um, but there's this awkward dinner scene where he you know is his. Uh, his brother, who's more in line with the the family's values, I guess, is right. you know he's got a promotion, and then they bring up Elgar's uh, crazy real estate scheme, yeah, and uh, it turns into this really uncomfortable sequence where, um, <laughs> I don't even know what I can say of this, but um, yeah, uh, so I'm going to tread carefully, but basically. Um, it starts as him trying to shock his his parents yeah. with with um, some kind of uh, foul language and, and alluding that the family is is part black. Like, um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, again, like it it cuts close to the the famous Chris Rock bit about like two different, you know. Anyway, it's again, it's, it's very hard for like two white guys to talk about. But. Yeah, um, but. It, then you're like, okay, yeah, he's sticking it to his rich family, right? And then the the one of the, the family servants, Haywood, yeah, um, he dumps a bowl of cold potato soup on his head, right? And the guy 
because it's his job, he has to re- react politely. And he's yeah. like, it's okay. There's more soup in the kitchen. Right. Uh, then Bo Bridges calls his family the N word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, right. And, uh, and like walks off and you realize like, Oh, this guy is, is clueless and as reckless as yes. his family. Right. Um, and the way the scene is shot, it then goes to Haywood, the the servant character, mm-hmm. and he's trying to hold it together and be dignified. And he's got soup all over his head. Yeah. And the mother just goes, "Ah, cut it out, Haywood! Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, like yeah. wipe that attitude off your face." Right. It's it's really kind of like a shocking scene um, that starts off like a hilarious cut down of snobs, you know? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was right. I mean, like the point, like, what what is what you realize, which is good, is like the movie understands that like Bo Bridges' character is only a couple of steps ahead of his family. Yeah, like he has like more positive attitudes towards black people, but not like he's not enlightened in any way. Right. Um, and that scene, right? It's like I guess it's you know, I mean, it's challenging in the way that good art is challenging because it's like. I mean, I want to like even I want to stick up for his character a little bit in that, like, I mean, he knows I think he like he knows what he's doing to Haywood is terrible, but he's just trying to make everybody admit what's really happening. Mm, Yeah. He's just trying to like bring to the surface what is like everybody's trying to politely like he's trying to he's like very rudely pointing out the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, as the movie goes on, it's clear that whatever his intentions are, Mm -hmm. he's kind of he's kind of created an issue or he, you know, he's, yeah. he's a problem. And, uh, yeah, there's he, really he tries no... to deal with it the best way he can by the right. end. Yeah. Which is still misguided, but, yes. but, um, maybe in a more pure way or something. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I will say the, the sequence with his mother and, um, the woman in the building with yeah, the hot Pearl liquor. Bailey. Yeah, Pearl, I forget, I Pearl Bailey. Yeah, Pearl Bailey. But yeah, Pearl as Bailey. Uh, Marge. Yeah, yeah. Um, Great. The mom after this, uh, after the scene where this comes around the time that uh, Bo Bridges and uh, Fanny get together, mm-hmm. uh, which is this nice extended scene, like beautifully played, um, where they're bathed. I, I didn't realize until the second time they're bathed in red light, so mm-hmm. it's like their skin color is neutralized, right. which is, and it looks incredible. Um, yep. But uh, the mom comes to, to um, you can tell Bo Bridges is a mama's boy and she comes yeah. to help him uh, with his place and she's going to put up the drapes and she ends up getting soused with, uh, <laughs> with Pearl Bailey and yeah. takes some ham hocks home <laughs> in her purse. <laughs> yeah. It's a hilarious scene. Um, the movie's yeah. got some really funny shit in it, despite going pretty some pretty heavy places. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I I really like it. I don't think it's perfect, and it it maybe um, maybe it doesn't bite off more than it can chew, but it it in going into some uncomfortable places, maybe doesn't uh, resolve them all in the way we would like to see in 2019. Right. Um, but I think it's as sharp as anything I've seen recently about race and predicts the, or I don't know if it predicts a lot of the issues of gentrification we're seeing now, but um, is definitely talking about them 40 years before we started talking about them. Yeah, for sure. Um yeah, I mean, in some way, like the movie is, you know, a bit like 
Elgar dumping the soup on Haywood. You know, it's like bringing up this uncomfortable thing. And it's like, oh, can we just not talk about it? It's like, oh, but wouldn't it be more productive if we just had this conversation? You know, like, yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, I would I would recommend it to to anybody uh, to check yeah. out the check out the landlord. Yeah, um, and it was that, like at a minimum, you know, like technically it's beautifully shot. The, mm, the yeah. acting performances are all great. Mm-hmm. Um, the soundtrack is way better than the soundtrack to Dallas Deep. Oh, I forgot uh, a connection to the past. Uh, the soundtrack is by Al Cooper, who we discussed in Like a Rolling Stone because he was the organist. On oh, that. nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, the Steely Dan universe, stealing in the Dan universe, all tying together. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, another thing you, you pointed out is the, the editing style. Um, right. Or the, there's a, this almost, really abstract kind of like almost surreal, yeah. yeah where they'll do these cutaways to to jokes or to like these like dream images um, that I think really like enrich the movie and, and make it um, yeah um, beyond just like a social comedy or or what have you right. Um, but yeah, uh, the landlord. Yeah, give it a check. Give it give it a go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Cool deal. Well, next um, week. Do we do next week first or what's good first? I think we do what's good. It's funny. I just listened to us have this conversation this morning. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> All right. I just listened to us have this conversation three months ago. But I'm, we do. I believe we do what's good first. Okay. Yes. Um, well, Scott, um, <laughs> I'm interested to know what's been good for you lately. What's what's good? Oh, man. I had a couple of things teed up and now I've completely spaced them. Um I've been watching. Uh, so recently I've been I finally picked up the um, Netflix series dark or i guess netflix picked up this german series dark mm. uh which everybody has been saying like hey don't be like put off by as like sort of like how dense and uh and uh enigmatic it is like dig into it um uh and i've i'm still only like five episodes into it but um it is very cool and it's like very unlike anything i've uh seen before uh the only thing is i'm extremely pissed off i don't know if this is just on my ipad i i always have a show that i watch while i'm doing my rowing machine uh and this is my new rowing show uh dark so i don't know if it's just my ipad but like um it always wants to do the english overdub which Mm. like i hate (laughs) um just because, like, rarely are overdub voiceover performances as good as the performances of the the people in it. Like, you know, they find somebody they can pay ten bucks an hour to to overdub these things. It's usually not a, a bravura performance. Um, so every time I love the show, I have to um, punch in um, uh, German and English subtitles. Uh, that doesn't stick. But other than that, uh, it's it's been a true delight. Um, man, poop. There was something I really wanted to talk about, and it's. Uh, it has eluded me, but uh, but I have uh, really been enjoying Dark. Okay, yeah, right on. Um, yeah, Joe, how about in your life? Uh, what has been good for you? Yeah, um, I've, I've had a, come across a few things, but I'll I'll uh, just focus on um, two uh, two things that I have really had to grapple with lately. Okay. Um, the first is I've revisited. I find myself going back to things that I that blew my mind in college a lot lately to kind of, um, see if I can understand the better as an adult. Yeah. Um, so, uh, speaking of Kierkegaard, uh, I've, I've been rereading his essay, the present age, okay, which is about the, uh, the, uh, passionlessness and, um, the glut of just, uh, reflection without content of the era that he lived in, which, um, feels like a frontline reporting from today mm. um, in a lot of ways um, and is, is something that I 
continue to try to figure out how to navigate. Yeah. Um, and then I have started finally watching Twin Peaks season three, oh, okay. um, which had I'd been avoiding because it seemed the hype was so so heavy that I was like, I don't want to be let down. Yeah. And I'll say so far, I'm surprised by both how radical it is, but at the same time, how it is a TV show. It's not like this mind-boggling uh, – well, it is mind-boggling, but it's, <laughs> it's not just like this like avant-garde installation that comes on TV. It's also a, a, a satisfying TV show in some ways. Yeah. Maybe satisfying is the wrong word because it challenges expectations at every turn. But I just watched the legendary Got a Light episode, which is – is like an avant-garde installation on television. Um, uh, it involves some... It's the one with the nuke, I'll say that. <laughs> um, if anybody has seen the show, uh, they'll know what I'm talking about. But it was like, as soon as that sequence uh, begins, um, after a Nine Inch Nails music video, <laughs> um, my uh, my spine was, uh, was tingling. It was... Uh, one of the most amazing things I've seen in a while. So, yeah. uh, a late a late recommendation for Twin Peaks season three for those who have who have uh, been putting it off as I have. Right on. Yeah. Did my, you remember your other thing? Uh, oh, I think I wanted to mention. Um, uh, there's a uh, a comic artist. Uh, he does both like a web comic and uh, comic books. Uh, he just wrapped up a series that he's been doing for a couple of years called Giant Days, and he just started a new one called Steeple, uh, which is very cool. Uh, like as we record this. Uh, the first issue just dropped, um, and it's about like a a, a new young uh, priest, uh, uh, Anglican priest, uh, gets assigned to a small town in the north of England, um, and it turns out there's like actual like <laughs> demonic or evil forces that they that she has to. Um, I mean, the first episode is sort of setting up that I mean, I'm pretty sure this is where the series is heading that she needs to partner up with the uh, the head of a local uh, satanic church uh, to uh, battle the forces of evil. Okay. Uh, well. But I'm a big fan of John Allison's work. He's a great guy on Twitter. He's the guy, I think I mentioned at some point on this podcast that um, he was like doing uh, tweet length album reviews at some point and taking suggestions. Mm. And I tweeted Gaucho at him and he did his uh, tweet length um, uh, review of Gaucho, which was great. Um, uh, so I'm just I'm a big fan of his writing and, and his art. Um, so uh, if you if uh, next time you swing by your, your local comic book shop, uh, look for Steeple by John Allison. Cool. All right, what are what are we gonna do for uh, for next week? The the change of the guard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, so I will say, like, um, quite honestly, I've been looking for an excuse to 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 rewatch this movie and uh, have you watch this movie and see what you think of it. Um, and I was struggling a little bit to think about uh, what. Uh, to pick for this and uh, but this movie that I've been trying to shoehorn into the podcast uh, for weeks now is actually uh, fitting. So uh, my pick is I don't even it's from the early 2000s, uh, but it's a film called Dinner Rush. OK. Starring Danny Aiello. OK. Um, I don't think it's like literally anywhere except on DVD and I have the DVD. So cool. um, I need to rewatch it. But then as soon as I do that, uh, I will lend you my copy. All right. Cool. Dinner Rush. Dinner Rush. Yeah, OK. Yeah. I've never even heard of this. Danny Aiello. Yeah. All right. uh, I've heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. My pick is um, this is not cruel revenge for Tao, the Tao of Steve. Yeah. Um, I promise Dinner Rush is better than Tao of Steve. Well, I, I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I think duets was, I enjoyed duets more than uh, Tao of Steve. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think my choice, we're going to stay in the year 1970 okay. and uh, do uh, 
the controversial um, Michelangelo Antonioni movie, Zabrisky Point. Um, okay. <laughs> that's, uh, I don't know, that's my pick for the cool. next time. It's yeah. 100% new on me. I'm going in cold. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, next week, folks, or two weeks from now. Yeah. Uh, go on Amazon, buy some, or no, don't go on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, no. Go fine. to your mom and pop, yeah. use a DVD shop and see if you can find Zabriski Point and uh, uh, Dinner, Dinner Rush. Dinner Rush, yeah. And, uh, and spend, what's the fucking song called? Uh, change of, change of the guard. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, yeah. It's just called change of the, the penultimate track. We're almost done with this album. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't spend it too much. You might hurt yourself. <laughs> but yeah, listen to it. Yeah, give it at least one spin. Yeah, and uh, there's only one thing left to do. I'm so glad we got to yes. fit this in. We were worried that uh, we we, we uh, producer Dakota is a busy man. He's got uh, appointments to keep. Uh, but we have wrapped this up in enough time uh, to. Uh, uh, to end as we always must, uh, Dakota, what did you learn about Steely Dan this week? Um, I I learned they have a subreddit, and I Ooh. subscribed to that subreddit. Interesting. And then I found out that October 18th, uh, they're holding an auction for property from the estate of Walter Becker. Interesting. And there's also an online component to it where you can go to Julian's Live to bid on all this stuff. And <laughs> it's... 1,086 items and it's like expect like guitars are expected to go for like 600 bucks so if you just like want a cheaper guitar than going to Guitar Center <laughs> buy Walter Becker's guitar wow wow that's a good call we said that on this show <laughs> <laughs> Dakota's been doing more research than us while yeah. we're talking. Uh, That's so funny, yeah. Yeah. Good deal. Well, well thanks. Yeah, pro tip from uh, producer Dakota. Yeah. Buy a Walter Becker guitar. Yeah, maybe we should splice that into uh, an earlier ep- uh, episode yeah, maybe that's we'll released cut it in. soon. Yeah, we're about to re- we're about to drop duets. Duets is the next one up, which where oh, yeah. I think Joe and I are that we're we're trying to stake our claim as like being the podcast that makes duets a cold classic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well. Good deal. Good night, sweet listeners. (laughs) Good night and good luck. Yes. Yes.